Good morning, good morning, Westside family. Good morning, Lenexa and Speedway in the North Room and the South Room and our online friends, all of you. It's my joy to be here with you. This whole weekend was really special, a tremendous privilege. Uh, what a gift that this church uh, created space for those families to get the, the time and ministry they needed. So thanks for having us all here into your town this week. Uh, my story actually um, started 25 years ago. I became a missionary and an adoptive and foster parent. And I've been in this world of the last, the lost, the last, and the least that you guys talk about um, for a long time. And in 2018, the Lord, this has never happened to me before. I don't know if we're at the start of the year, maybe this happened to you all, but like sometimes God gives like people like a word for their year, you know, and they write it in their journals and they tell people like, this is the word God wants me to focus on this year. Sometimes they tattoo it on their bodies or whatever. Never happened to me. 2018, I felt like God gave me a word. And it was extra cool because the word was in Hebrew. The word was heneni, which was a good word for me because in English we translate heneni as here I am. Good missionary word. But I learned uh, heneni actually better translates out of the Hebrew into English as whatever it is you're asking of me, I'm already in agreement of it. So in 2018, I was telling people, like, this is the year of heneni. I'm gonna tell the Lord, yes, he calls my name. I'm not gonna say I'm too busy or too tired or too old or too young or too any of the excuses I can come up with to not do what he wants me to do. And I was, uh, we, we see Hanani eight times in our Old Testament. We see it in the Exodus 3 passage where Moses is in front of the burning bush and God calls his name Moses. He responds, Hanani, here I am. We see in Genesis 22, Abraham's about to walk up a mountain and thinks he's going to sacrifice his son Isaac and God calls to him Abraham and he responds, Hanani, here I am. Whatever it is you're gonna ask me, I'm already in agreement of it. Well, in uh, that year, six months into it, I went to Israel and I was talking to my Hebrew guide about the word and I said, hey, like I'm telling people about this word, can you just confirm I'm teaching it okay, like I'm saying it right? He's like, no, 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 that's all right, Beth. He's like, but you know there's one place in your Bible where the Lord says, Hanani, to you. I said, there's some place in my Bible where the Lord says, whatever it is I'm asking of him, he's already in agreement of it. Okay, let's find that, please. And so he said, uh, open up your Bibles to Isaiah 58. You're welcome to follow along with me or I'll read it to you. Isaiah chapter 58, verse six. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and to break every chain? To share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see someone naked to clothe them? Like, be about my business. This is the kind of fasting I've chosen. See the lost and the last and the least. Do something about it. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call out and the Lord will answer. You will cry out for help and he will say, Heneni, here I am. Whatever it is you're asking of me, I'm already in agreement of it. And that's my testimony to you today. For 25 years, I have regularly found myself in assignments that have outsized me. I have found myself in, in circumstances where I literally was not enough. Smart enough, strong enough, right? kind enough, patient enough, self-controlled enough. I didn't have enough wisdom, mercy, discernment. Not, never, I, I, I never have enough. And in those moments, busy about his business, crying out for help, his response to me every time has been, what do you need? I'll give you a full measure of it. I won't give it to you sometimes. I don't give it to you a little bit. You are my kid. You can get anything that you need from me. 
Like, what, what is it that you need? And uh, during about a 10-year period of time, my husband and I fostered teenage girls. So I got lots of sermon material out of that season. <laughs> and uh, two of the girls had been in protective care their whole lives because their extended families had been involved in some illegal activity. So they lived in an orphanage. I lived in Mexico for 15 years. So they were living in an orphanage in Mexico and then eventually came into my home under what we would recognize as foster care. And uh, eventually when they were teenagers, thanks to the internet and Facebook, those extended family members found us. And they called my house and they would make threats against our family. And my basic strategy was just to hang up on them. But one Monday, I realized everything had escalated a little bit and they told me they were coming on Friday to have the girls removed from our home. And uh, I hung up the phone and I realized that I needed to be ready for whatever Friday was going to bring. So I called my Mexican mentor this woman who ran the orphanage that these little girls had lived in before they came to my house. She was, Martha was over 80 years old, and I don't know if you know anyone like this, but she's walked with God so well for so long that when I was around her, I just like literally like to rub up against her, which that is not how discipleship happens. Like that's not, but like I just, I just wanted to be next to her. Like whatever peace she had, I was hoping it was contagious. So I called her and I'm like, ah, these people are coming on Friday. Here's what I want you to bring. Every visitor log nobody ever signed, every school record, medical record, picture on your refrigerator they made for you. If somebody wants to hold court with us, we'll do it right there at my house on Friday. And then I spent the next week, 25 hours in government offices amassing what I thought was a pretty powerful claim to the girls being and continuing our care. Friday came, Martha pulls up and she has this big bag in her back seat she wants me to help her with, which I think is a great sign because I also have a really big bag I had gotten together. I get her settled into the dining room at the table with the two sisters and about a half an hour later, these people come into our ministry campus and the best way I could describe them to you is they were like an angry mob of bees. They got out of their car and they were swearing and threatening and shouting and screaming and saying all kinds of things. And I just was like, hi, I'm Beth. Welcome to Back to Back. Can I get you some iced tea? And it was not, I couldn't get control of the rim. So finally I was like, fine. And I just started to walk to my house and they followed me. And our houses in Mexico are made out of cement. So the acoustics are crazy. And I walked into the house with them and they saw the girls for the first time and the whole thing kind of ratcheted up a notch and, and I, I could not control the room. So I stood on my own dining room chair and I yelled at the top of my lungs, I think Martha has something she'd like to say. <laughs> and everybody looks at her and I'm thinking to her, I'm sending her like a little mental message. Hey, you and I talked that the most powerful thing we have is a visitor log nobody ever signed. We were gonna end with that, but like, let's start. But she did not hear my mental message. And she reaches in her bag and she pulls out her Bible. These people do not share our faith. And I, I, I was thinking, are you confused? And she just quietly opens up her Bible <laughs> to Psalm chapter one, which is beautiful about tree and season, planted, bears fruit. You know, it, it's a great Psalm. I don't really care who you are. Some beautiful 80 plus year old woman begins to read her Bible. You're afraid of lightning bolts. So you just, everybody just got real quiet. And uh, I can remember when she finished up Psalm 1 thinking to myself, I literally would have never thought of this as a tactic. But now you have the room, so get the visitor log. She doesn't even take a breath at the end of Psalm 1. She goes into Psalm 2. Not nearly as quotable about nations plotting and conspiring in vain. Goes into Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. 
At this point, the girls and I are kind of slumped back in our chairs, and I, I like political things, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I mean, we're like in a spiritual filibuster at some point. Like, <laughs> these people have to go to the bathroom. Like, they are gonna get hungry, right? She gets into Psalm 10, and I could tell she was landed somewhere. It says at the end of Psalm 10, you, O Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them, and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of this earth may terrify us no more. She closed her Bible and she said, these little girls are daughters of the King Most High. You ask them where he has told them to be. And they both were like, a key, like right here. And these people did not get up and like shake my hand and thank me for years of service. I do not wanna misrepresent this story. They did push away from their table and in frustration began to yell and swear and shout and scream and threaten again and say things I never wanted those girls to say, but they were saying them as they were kind of backing up to my door. So I like just go around them and I opened it. <laughs> and as they were doing that, then they, 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 they go to their car and I'm like, are they leaving? And I open up the gate on our ministry campus and they go flying out of that gate. And I shut that thing thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I spent 25 hours in government offices. The lady reads 10 Psalms and these people are gone. <laughs> I'm ready to go rub up against her. And I ran into the house and I'm like, you did it. Like you did it, you did it, you did it, you did it, you did it. And she was not done yet. She put her Bible, which is much bigger than mine, up in my face. And she said, don't you ever forget this. This is the only sword we ever take into battle. Like, oh man. <laughs> She taught me a lesson that day I've carried with me every day since, that in the pursuit of the last and the lost and the least, it is the wielding of the word of God against the kingdom of darkness that threatens us, that advances what God's doing. It's not about anything I ever bring to the table. He is the star of every single story. Martha was standing on top of a, of a teaching that Jesus did in Mark chapter four and five. The end of Mark chapter four, he's standing on the edge of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. He points to an area across the Sea of Galilee, a community called the Decapolis up on a great big cliff. And he tells the disciples he wants to go over there to the Decapolis. The disciples obey him. We don't know this. We might, I mean, they might've been thinking to themselves. What we now know is the people over there were worshiping the gods of fertility and wine. So you can imagine what their worship songs sound like, right? <laughs> we also know that especially in that first century, large bodies of water were, in Jewish communities were metaphorical for the abyss. Think about what happened to Jonah and Noah. They might've been thinking, I don't wanna go across the abyss to those people over there worshiping the gods of fertility and wine. But whatever, we don't know what they were thinking. We just know they obeyed. And they got halfway across that abyss and it did to, it, to them exactly what it'll do to us in pursuit of the lost and the last and the least. It kicked itself up in their face. And Jesus taught those disciples and the rest of us who want to read the account in Mark 4 what to do when the storm comes against us in our pursuit of God's will. He silenced it with the words out of his mouth. Today we have the words out of his mouth. He gets to the other side and the edge of that, uh, Mark chapter 5 verse 1, it says that Jesus gets out of the boat there on the edge of the Decapolis and he meets a man, the Bible calls legion because he was possessed with demons the man had been chained to a graveyard, even though he had blood in his body and breath in his lungs. People considered him discarded, not worth it, already dead, cast aside. But emboldened by 
those demons, he broke from those chains, met Jesus. Jesus looked at him, knew what was going on, looked to his side, saw 2,000 pig. We now know they were, they were sacrificing those pigs on the altars of the gods of fertility and wine. Cast those demons into those pigs. Go, pigs go flying off that cliff. And that man looks at Jesus and was like, whoever you are, I'm going to go with you. And I want Jesus to take him with him. And that's not what he does. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed, this is Mark chapter five, begged to go with him. But Jesus didn't let him. Instead, he said, go home to your own people like the people that chained him up to the graveyard and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much that Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. And then Jesus gets back in the boat and he crosses back over that abyss and he goes back home to Capernaum. And I was thinking to myself the first time my heart fully wrapped itself around that story that Jesus did all of that abyss crossing for one person. And he wasn't even the best person over there, right? Like the mayor of the Decapolis or the captain of the football team. In fact, he was the least likely, most discarded, unwanted, given up on member of their community. And Jesus tells lots of stories like that in scripture of a shepherd who leaves 99 to go after a one. He himself modeled leaving the crowd for a conversation. This is the heart of Jesus for the one, for the one and he wants to use us in those ways. That's part of what the response of Hanani is. Here I am. Are we crossing an abyss today? Are we, are we entering into a storm? When I, I lived in, in Monterey, Mexico for 15 years. And the story I'm going to tell you happened in 2011. And I moved there in 1997. So at this point in the story, I felt practically Mexican. Like I knew all the colors. Salsa came in. I understood that football, you kick with your foot. Like I... I and, and in that year, we were in a, a cartel crisis. The city I lived in was 6 million people, a great big city. We had 1,872 assassins that year, assassinations that year as a result of the cartel war. And everything was different in the city. Taco stands weren't open at night. Soccer leagues weren't playing at night. People were afraid. And a pastor friend of mine that summer of 2011 had a dream, and in his dream, he prayed. He, he imagined himself praying over a group of police officers. And he woke up and told his wife, who's like, I don't think we know any officers. He tried to get in contact with some officers. And then a, a couple of months later, he was preaching on a Sunday morning, and an elder passed him a note. This was very common in those days. It just said, hey, go through your sermon again, because the building's surrounded by police. Which you could be at the grocery store or the movie theater, and there could be an incident, and they would lock everything down. So the assumption was that something had happened outside and we just needed to keep everybody inside and safe until it was done and clear. And then a few minutes later, the elder came back and said, never mind, all clear. It turns out the new chief of police is in the congregation today and it's a security detail. So Salatiel went and met with that police chief at that service and told him about his dream and said, would you be open to me coming to your station and praying over your officers? And the the police chief was like, well, you probably know I just got here, right? Because the last police chief was assassinated last week. I just got here from Cancun. I don't know very many of them, but I haven't met anybody I think wants you to pray over them. He kept pressing until finally the police chief relented. And that fall on a Saturday morning, when the night shift and the day shift had a roll call switch, for three minutes, he gave him the floor. And my friend, the pastor, shared the basics of the gospel while everybody stood at attention. And afterwards, I said, how'd it go? And he's like, well, nobody really responded, but he felt full of fire 
because that's what happens when you respond with Haneni to what God's asking of you. You don't look to see the response. You just look to see in your obedience. He asked the police chief if he could come the next week, and he's like, because it went so well, but yes. And so he started to go every Saturday for three minutes, not really any response to it. That fall, my friend felt like the Lord told him to bring a worship leader with him, so he split his three minutes with a guitar player from the church who played a song that nobody knew how to sing, but they listened to it. Now we're into the winter, the start of 2012, and on a January Saturday, one of the sergeants during the worship song fell over. And this is a room full of first responders, right? So everybody thought he had a heart attack. But the pastor and the police chief recognized right away that he had become overcome with the Holy Spirit. And the police chief was like, well, listen, maybe there's something actually going on. They just don't know how to say it. They don't, they don't have the leadership skills. Or they, don't know, they don't know how to like express what God might be doing on the inside as they've been listening to you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to come every day in February for 30 minutes, I want you to teach. I'll give you 30 minutes in the morning. You can teach a leadership class. We'll base it on the biblical character of David. Let's teach him how David was in battle and how he was integrous and how he, had a, he was a man after God's own heart. And Sal tells like, every day, 30 minutes? Okay, 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 I'll do it. And then he, so he went every day in the month of February. And at this point in our country and in our city, the National Guard had been called in because the cartel war was so grave. And we were losing about 28 to 29 officers' lives every month. On the, on the last day of February 2012, the police chief made an announcement to his station, something that everybody already knew. As he was passing out the certificates upon the completion of this leadership course, he said the month of February, not a single officer's life was lost. So not every police chief, I mean, police officer like accepted Jesus, started worshiping, but like they didn't even all, all understand still the gospel, but they definitely wanted whatever like good juju this guy was bringing into the house. Like, I don't know who you are, but whatever you've got, I want more of it. And the police officers themselves requested that he come every day from here on out. And so if he was here, he would tell you that's the day the story started. That on March 1st of 2012, he got a bunch of his pastor friends together and he was like, hey, listen, everybody, like we're gonna pass this calendar around and you're going to we're gonna divvy up these days and I don't want you to invite them to your church. We're gonna bring church to them. And all through the spring and summer of 2012, so, so Monterey is like a big city with all these big like subdivisions, for lack of a better word. And this community that I'm telling you about had been census to about a million people. It's the town of Guadalupe. In the spring and summer of 2012, there was becoming front page news that Guadalupe was having unprecedented amount of arrests, more so than the National Guard, and it was actually kind of embarrassing to them. We into the starting of the fall of 2012, things were coming back to normal again. People were playing soccer and eating tacos in the dark, and the town of Guadalupe elected a new mayor who called all these community leaders into his office right off the bat and said, hey, one of my first political responsibilities is I'm supposed to give the keys of the city to somebody. And I want to give it to someone who's responsible for the changes we've been seeing in the last year in this town. And I know you all are in the middle of it, and I don't know which one of you wants to represent what you guys have been doing, and I don't want to pick. So talk amongst yourselves. Who among you would like to be responsible for what's been happening in the city? And my friend Salatiel said, well, you'd like to know who is responsible for the change that's happening in the city of Guadalupe? That would be Jesus Christ. And the mayor's like, you'd like my first political act to be to give the keys of the city to like Jesus Christ? Like, and he's like, well, if you'd like to know who's responsible, that's exactly who it is. So in case you think I'm making this up, I brought a video of what happened when they gave the keys to Jesus Christ. 
hoy yo, César Garza Villarreal, presidente municipal de Ciudad Guadalupe, entrego la ciudad de Guadalupe, Nuevo León, a nuestro Señor Jesucristo. We cut off the video, but it goes on for almost another 10 minutes. The town of Guadalupe went crazy. And in these political events in the front row, you have the dignitaries from like the other surrounding municipalities. And they're looking at each other like, hey, my key thing's next week. Like, I'm giving my keys to Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> and by the end of 2012, that's exactly what happened. All of these surrounding communities around the Monterey city proper began to give their keys and dedicate their towns over into the hands of Jesus Christ and revival broke out. January of 2013, there was one community that had not um, succumbed to this movement, and that was the city proper. And so in January, the police chief called my, my pastor friend and said, uh, what are you doing on Saturday? Would you like to come for three minutes? And he stood in front of 1,400 officers that Saturday, and he gave the basics of the gospel. And afterwards, I'm like, how'd it go? He's like, well, I mean, they just stood at attention the whole time. And I said, are, are you discouraged? He's like, no, I'm gonna wait a few weeks and bring a guitar player. And uh, in July of 2013, the mayor of our city stood on our, our Capitol building and in front of a nationally televised audience, read an entire chapter of the book of Isaiah and dedicated the whole city into the hands of Jesus Christ. And not everybody understood what was happening. In fact, our headline the next morning said, if you turned on your water and it tasted like wine, you can thank the mayor. <laughs> But what I get most excited about testifying to their story is they are a group of people who accepted an assignment that outsized them. And they made sure in the midst of the entire storyline, there was one star of that story, and that was Jesus. When we are in pursuit of those that are lost and last and least, Jesus, Jesus first, Jesus always, Jesus, like Jesus, 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 I can't say it enough. He is who pushes back darkness. He who's who, who's who calms the storms. Jesus is the star of the story. Even stories we don't understand why they end up turning out the way they do. When I was a college student, I was at a Christmas conference with Campus Crusade for Christ. I, I used to say that was my major. And, um, and the, there was a conference speaker, a man named Josh McDowell. And he was telling us, college students, about a story uh, almost 40 years ago now of a group of missionaries who were passing through Rwanda and they were sharing the gospel with tribes who had had no exposure to Jesus at that point. And one man in one of the tribes responded so strongly to the gospel, he wouldn't shut up about it. He just kept talking and talking and talking and talking about Jesus. And it was bothering the rest of the tribe who had not responded to the gospel the way he had. And finally, one evening at a tribal council, he was warned, tomorrow we're going to ask you to denounce your faith and if you don't, we're gonna take your life for it. It will cost you your life. We now know that that man went into his room and wrote something I'm gonna to read to you right now. We also know the next day at the tribal council, when asked to renounce his new faith in Jesus, he refused to do so and did lose his life. But we also now know someone else in that tribe had received Jesus, just didn't have the boldness of his friend. But when he watched his friend give his life for Jesus, he went and rescued this writing and the story of what God has done in that tribe in that space is still being told 40 years later. And when Josh was reading what I'm about to read to you and I was sitting in a crowd just like yours, like I just raised my hand at one point, like in case you are looking down from heaven, Jesus, pick me. I, 
I'm resonating, my spirit is resonating with this brother in Christ. And then like a little bit farther down, like raising my hand didn't feel like enough and I stood up and my, like just stood up where I was. And by the end, I was standing on my chair telling the Lord, hey, this is how I feel. This is what I wanna tell people. It has meant a lot to me and I wanted to close our time by sharing it with you. Uh, this brother in Christ uh, began his, his message by saying, I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. My decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back or let up or slow down or back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living and sight walking and small planning and smooth knees and colors, dreams and tame visions and mundane talking and chintzy giving and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence or prosperity or position or promotion or plaudits or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or regarded or rewarded. I now live by presence. I learn by faith. I love by patience. I lift by prayer and I labor by power. My pace is set. My goal is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable and my mission, it is clear. I cannot be bought or compromised, deterred or lured away, turned back, diluted or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. I will not hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy. I will not ponder at the pool of popularity or meander into the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up or shut up until I've prayed up and paid up and stored up and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he'll have no trouble recognizing me. My colors will be clear, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes.